Hello and welcome to Meet the Education Researcher. This is a podcast from the Faculty of Education, Monash University in Melbourne, Australia. Hello, my name is Neil Selwyn and in this episode we're talking with Dr Anna Hogan from UQ, University of Queensland. Over the past few years, Anna's developed a reputation as someone who asks really important questions about the fast-changing relationships between public education and commercial interests. In this conversation, we cover a lot of ground, including the diverse ways that commercial actors are now involved in our schools, the need to rethink our assumptions about what public education actually is, and how things are changing quickly in light of COVID-19. But first off, I asked Anna a deliberately tricky question. How would she describe the underlying focus of all her work? Fundamentally, it's really about how the logics of privatisation um, affect what it means to be a public school today. And so when I'm when I'm talking about privatisation, I guess I'm referring to things like school choice and competition, increased accountability, increased autonomy for schools, um, even things like selective student enrolments, public school fees, or you know otherwise called voluntary contributions. Um, and all sorts of private sector relationships um, that schools are now trying to trying to um, get with private sector companies or philanthropies and sponsorship arrangements, things like that. So I think, you know, it's, it's really about understanding notions of um, public and private and moving away from that sort of good versus evil um, and really trying to explore what publicness is and, and perhaps what it ought to be in the 21st century. Well, I was going to say, it sounds like your research is concerned with the notion of public education, which we talk about a lot. But I mean, do you have a kind of go-to definition for that? I mean, who do, who do you actually look to to define what public education is? Funnily enough, that's the sort of research that we're trying to do at the moment, because our argument is essentially that those sort of traditional definition of public schools as being comprehensive and secular and free at the point of provision don't really hold up anymore. So part of our research trajectory right now is going, well, what actually defines a public school today? And we think this is a really important conversation to have because if we can't define what it is and what it should be, then it becomes really difficult to argue what the difference is between public and private schools, particularly in the likes of um, a context like Australia. And it's sort of this kind of dangerous ground to be standing on where you think it could be quite easy to move towards the idea of charter schools or academies um, or other kind of public school privatisation reforms that we've seen in other countries. And who gets to define what public education is as well? I mean, it's really important to ask these questions in 2020, but I mean, you're not the first people to think about this. I mean, who do you look back to, say, from the 20th century, um, kind of theory-wise or kind of critical commentary about public education? Yeah, um, in Australia, Ian Hunter um, did a fantastic little book. I think it's from the early 90s. Um, and it's all about um, rethinking the public school. And so that's um, someone we've kept going back to in sort of theoretically in terms of um, our current research to sort of understand, you know, why do we think of um, public schools the way we do? And if if you think about it, it's really been quite a recent idea that we've had since post-World War II um, that we've really invested in the idea of comprehensive public schools. And I think Ian Hunter's work does a really nice job of us sort of breaking down what our principled positions are. And I think the recent work of um, people like Jess Gerard um, are really doing fascinating things in terms of understanding this and sort of our romanticised notion of what a public school is and and how they often haven't really been um, 
comprehensive for a lots of um, different groups and minority groups. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so public in name, but not maybe in deeds. And I mean, in terms of the research you're doing, you said it's a really important area to do meth- uh, methodological research, empirical research. I mean, what methods do you actually turn to in order to kind of unpack these questions? Kind of a lot of pretty traditional things, um, a lot of policy analysis, a lot of um, interviewing. Um, I have done a little bit of network ethnography um, here and there. And really what that's about trying to do is investigate, I suppose, the relationships that aren't always obvious. Um, And I think if I was to make an example, even thinking about things like NAFLAN um, and ACARA's development of this every year, um, it's outsourced almost completely to the private sector for millions of dollars. And I think, you know, Akara is not exactly shouting that fact um, from the rooftops. So it's more about, um, you know, how do we get to the heart of, of those relationships and what's actually happening when these are sort of hidden or rather opaque. Um, so really, if, if we're using the internet, if we're using social media, we're picking up on threads of um, corporate annual reports, of media releases, like little snippets of information that you start to build together. And I think that then allows you... Um, a sense to be able to go to specific organisations and ask for more detail, ask for particular policy documents or ask for interviews um, with certain people. So really it's about marrying those really traditional methods with using those resources that we have, you know, at our fingertips today. Yeah, absolutely. I was going to say, it's, I mean, you can make the connections and it's really important to do that. But how do you really dig underneath into those relationships? I mean, you go to a private company, for example, and they say, we're not going to speak to you. I mean, what qualitative rich work do you actually have to do to try and unpack the nature of the relationships? Yeah, keep prodding. Um, there's no simple answer. And in fact, it's it's getting really difficult. So in some ways, when you're working with um, public institutions and government institutions, you can do freedom of information requests. Um, and this is something that I've tried time and time again. So just to get the information from um, government organisations and ACARA is a prime example here. But now, increasingly, we're seeing commercial inconfidence coming up as a clause to prevent access um, to different sorts of um, information. So if you're looking at um, wanting, for example, contract information, that will often be held back on the idea that they won't be able to um, get value for contracts in the future. Um, And as you say, when you're talking to private corporations and the relationships that are existing between private Um, they don't have any sort of public accountability in terms of making those known. So there is so much happening behind the scenes that we really have no awareness of whatsoever. And again, going back to that sort of you might see on Twitter or this, you know, media release from a private company, hang on, they said they were working in partnership like Pearson and IBM, for example, but you can't see or find any evidence of that whatsoever. So, yeah, it's, it's a really challenging environment to get I guess, research information and where do you even collect it from these days? Absolutely. And I guess universities are getting more and more jumpy about doing that kind of research as well, given the ties that universities have with corporations. Yes, it's very interesting, even what's happened um, during COVID-19 and, you know, in our institution, the sudden rush to online learning and and the type of products and um, services we've been using and you sort of ask some critical questions and, and you sort of ask, well, what's happening to the data here? And, you know, what's my IP in terms of um, uploading my um, lectures onto these sites? Um, and there's sort of questions they can't really answer either. Yeah. And, and I'm talking to you over Zoom. So, I mean, we're complicit in this completely. So, I mean, let's move to the big topic of interest. Then, I mean, you, we've talked about it already, but it, the rise of commercialism in public education and the role of kind of corporate interests in education. I mean, what sort of actors and activities are we actually talking about here? So, I suppose there's what I would 
define as, as three significant type of actors. So we've got our um, commercial corporations, which would often operate on a for-profit basis. So a really easy way to think about that is Pearson in Australia. Um, you've also got, I suppose, your textbook publishers, as well as, I don't know, the, the hugely expanding ed tech industry. Then you've got your not-for-profit providers, um, which are still selling um, products and services to schools. And again, in Australia, a really key one here would be the Australian Council for Educational Research. And then you have your philanthropic organisations. And these can be individual philanthropists or they can be um, coalitions come together. And one that I think um, comes to mind as being quite um, well-known in Australia, um, at least over recent years, is the, um, the Safe Schools Coalition. Um, I think these actors are really trying to offer a range of different products and services to schools. So outside organisations have always offered products and services to schools, but I mean, what's different here? I think it's the intensity um, of those offerings. So if you think about what is now on offer to a usual school, you've got from school administration so this is, I mean, if you've been to a school recently, um, I always sign in with the apps now. So instead of, you know, writing into a book, you're signing in with an app and it takes a photo of you and it prints out a form all automatically. Um, it's timetabling software. It's the, the student management platforms. Um, some states uh, obviously develop these in-house through the government services, but others, um, you know, they're buying these from the commercial sector. You've got your teaching and learning activities. Um, again, platform and platform management has become really necessary in the context of COVID-19 for hosting our online virtual classrooms. We've got uh, curriculum materials, online programs. We've got the online tutoring software, um, you know, the, the programs like Mathletics, the assessments like PADR and PADM, um, you know, there's teacher professional development, there's remedial services, you know, there's the entire outsourcing of subjects, and this is particularly with health and physical education, drama, music. Um, you know, I can, I can keep going on. There's the hardware that schools are buying in terms of um, the computers they need. Um, there's consultants that come in and do data analysis for schools. Um, and again, there's even, you know, the, that push towards making sure that you're getting um, productive relationships with your private sector and particularly businesses within your community. And this might be twofold, one in the sense of um, sponsorship arrangements um, with schools to sort of get more um, private income, but also the idea of giving students different types of experiences um, in terms of um, linking up with business opportunities in the community as well. well I mean, it's, it's a tangle of interests and a kind of web of connections, but I was going to ask you about what is in it for these companies above and beyond profit, because education and schools is not a very profitable sector to be working in. So, I mean, what are the other motivations for these actors to actually get involved in, in public education? So I think it's a really good question. So I guess beyond the, you know, initial sale of um, particular um, products and services, there's all sorts of different reasons. And some of these are very much around corporate social responsibility. Um, you know, there's different businesses that truly feel like they're giving back um, to schools in different ways. But there's also this general sense that the private sector can do things better and more efficiently um, if you give them the opportunity to do so. So I think if you think about the really big privatisation agendas in public schooling, and again, I'm thinking here about the private management of public schools. So we see the charter schools that, um, in the US, um, you know, the academies in the UK. So this idea that I suppose these schools are really meant to be about um, innovation and giving more autonomy to these private providers 
uh, to really go and make a difference in, in academic performance. And, you know, the research doesn't always necessarily say that or um, agree with that. But I also think, you know, if, if you think about the other big issues that are being um, researched internationally and particularly with the idea of philanthropy um, and this idea that philanthropists aren't necessarily just giving in terms of corporate social responsibility and they're not just giving back to their community, but it tends to come with a particular underpinning rationale. So I guess in one way to think about this in Australia um, where we have, you know, nowhere near as the amount of philanthropy that we see in the US, but even the sponsorship arrangements that exist in public schools, you often then see those um, businesses being marketed or advertised, whether it's in the school newsletters, up on school new, uh, notice boards, um, you see them on um, sports uniforms or even on the sports equipment that um, schools are using. But then there's, you know, there's a lot more, um, I guess, significant issues happening, particularly in the US where you know, foundations or philanthropists will target um, school boards or school districts um, with targeted money around particular reform initiatives. And I think, you know, if you look at the work of um, someone like Sarah Rekow or Chris Lubienski, they're doing really important um, work in this regard. So the corporate reform of public education, and we talk about this a lot, I mean, you've mentioned a lot of things there which might sound concerning to some people listening, but I mean, to you, what are the kind of essential concerns that we should be raising about all of all of the stuff you've just described? I think fundamentally it comes back to whether, I suppose, the private sector has the best interests of students at heart. And I think that's, you know, if you work in education, that's what you're fundamentally concerned about. Um and I think the work that colleagues and I have done over a period of time now is that we've tried to be really clear is that we don't necessarily have an issue with the private sector or the privatisation of public schooling. Um, and I think it's really important to understand that if a product or a service or a private sector company is helping teachers or schools to do their practice better, then we can assume that's actually useful. But I think it's about understanding the point at which commercialisation starts to undermine teachers or the teaching profession or how teaching and learning should be done in schools. And I think that's the point at which we need to be concerned about commercialisation. And I think, you know, if just to keep going, I think one of the things that I'm concerned about or one of the next big pushes um, that we see kind of coming or starting to occur, particularly, I think, you know, from the context of COVID-19, is that push towards online schooling or the rise of artificial intelligence um, in learning. And I think this starts to raise a number of really important questions for consideration about what do we actually want the future of public schooling to be and what do we want it to look like? And um, something that I think I keep coming back to is this idea that um, schools really are about more than the individual pursuit of knowledge and skills. So, I mean, very few of these actors, I would say, are probably act, acting in bad faith. But on the other hand, they're probably not thinking about these issues. So, I mean, how are you kind of trying to push your research findings and messages back to the corporate sector? Really good question and a really um, difficult one to answer. I think exactly as you say, none of these people are, are operating maliciously. They, they genuinely feel like they're doing the right thing and they're you know, they're really engaged in how to make um, education a, a better asset for more people. So um, it is complex. And, you know, one of the ways that we've found, I guess, some success in doing this is linking up with teacher unions. Mm. So we found that, obviously, for one, they're far better at um, disseminating research and research findings than what academics are. And that's typically because they've got um, a direct line of communication with their members 
But also really importantly, they advocate um, to bureaucrats and policymakers all the time. So if we can help, I suppose, inform them with some of the research that we're doing, but also making sure that we're working with them to understand the key issues um, of what's facing schools and teachers on the ground today as well. So I think it's it's really that two-way process. Um, so for us, that's been a really nice way to try and um, pick up some sort of impact and speak back to some of these companies. But I think oh. we've got a long way to go. <laughs> that's really, really, really important. Um, I just wanted to ask you very finally, I mean, you've talked a bit about how COVID might be kind of opening up new issues that you're going to be addressing in your research. But I mean, how has COVID impacted on you as a researcher? How has COVID actually changed your scholarship? You know, in some ways, it's put a a stop to collecting um, some data in the sense of, you know, some of the projects that were up and running were obviously working with um, schools and being in schools. So, um, you know, departmentally wise, that was no longer allowed. But there's been other opportunities, again, to really follow and try and map um, what's been happening as this pandemic has been unfolding. Um, and I've had the pleasure of working with um, Ben Williamson um, from uh, the UK on some of these ideas. And, and really what we've done is tried to just assemble the the, the huge amount of um I guess, the mobility that's happening um, and the different relationships that are starting to pop up, not only between, I suppose, governments and commercial actors in in simply trying to provide a continuity of learning to students during the pandemic, but also the big moves that are happening, um, particularly around, you know, the likes of Google and Microsoft and Amazon, who really weren't involved in schooling that much prior to COVID-19 and all of a sudden they're sort of um, jostling for what the future of um, schooling looks like and and how the data infrastructures and and the learning management systems might operate into the future. Yeah, things have been moving very, very fast. It worries me that the the kind of mantra in Silicon Valley is move fast and break things Um, and that's kind of where the tensions lie in terms of public education. Yeah, certainly. And I think, you know, one of the the things that I suppose is is concerning or, or what might be, I suppose, the lasting impact of COVID-19, you know, once the pandemic passes, and hopefully it does pass, is this idea that, um, you know, this this kind of push from Silicon Valley in terms of, um, you know, online schools, and already these are massive in the US. If you look at um, Connections Academy, which is a subsidiary of Pearson, they're already offered as a public charter school for any child to enrol in. And also this idea of, I suppose, the more AI-based learning is this sense of what does the the future look like? And I think increasingly it's this idea of, um, if not a completely online environment, a very much a hybridised model of schooling. And I think that's what we will continue to see over the coming years. It's always nice to end on a kind of upbeat note. (laughs) Thanks ever so much for taking the time to do this. It's really interesting to catch up with you and your work. And it sounds like you're going to have heaps of stuff to be researching in the next few months. Thanks, Neil.